Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of a Modern Nonprofit Podcast. Today, I have a special friend here with me, Julio Barreto, and we're going to talk a little bit more about nonprofits and how we might think more like a for-profit and why that may or may not make sense for you. I, as you all know, run a for-profit business that works exclusively with nonprofits, so I'm on a little bit different perspective, and I used to work for a nonprofit, so I kind of get some of the challenges there with respect to that. And and Julio, you too, you work with, you know, for-profit, you've worked with nonprofit, you kind of mentor all sorts of people. So I'm really excited to get into this conversation and talk about, I think, some some areas that could be maybe a little controversial, right? Because some people like to be very um, separate from the for-profit world. So let's just go ahead and dive right in. But thanks, Julio, for being with us today. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Good. So uh, one of the questions that you and I were kind of talking about, it sometimes said that nonprofits should learn to operate more like a for-profit entity, right? To create greater efficiency, not so much in the way of make profit, but to do things kind of smarter and not harder. What can nonprofit executives learn from the private sector in your experience? You know, I think there are three things. I think one is really focusing on results. It's been my experience Mm -hmm. that nonprofits oftentimes are so focused on process that they don't necessarily focus on getting results done. I think second is not to be afraid to change and to be innovative. I've worked with, I worked with a nonprofit, the last nonprofit I worked with, I I was there 13 years, three years in, it was obvious to me the structure they had in place was outdated and was Mm. not going to accommodate where the future was heading, where you can see where the future was going. So I think being willing to pivot when things aren't working, I think is important. And I think the third thing is to recognize that the nonprofit has assets that it can leverage for its benefits. I'll give you two examples. That same organization I work with, we had a consultant approach us to help us with our fundraising. And they said, listen, you represent your your members are active in a variety of sectors, IT, in financial areas, construction. Those are assets that we can leverage and get these companies to pay to basically access your membership. The organization didn't understand that concept and lost a golden opportunity in some cases to triple their their fundraising revenue. The second thing is we had a a for-profit entity come to us and say, listen, we think you're sitting on a $20 million market and we want to provide management services to this market. We'll give you $800,000 in order for us to access that $20 million market. Mm-hmm. Now, the gentleman on staff that they approached thought that was a great deal. Me and others said, listen, if we're sitting on $20 million, why are we, why would we settle for $800,000? Sure, why sure. not reorganize ourselves mm-hmm. and go after the $20 million instead of settle mm-hmm. for the eight hundred? dollars He couldn't understand that. Mm-hmm. Because he was of the mindset, let them do all the work, and we can't repivot what we're doing. And so consequently, that opportunity fell by the wayside, all because mm-hmm. we, 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 we had leadership that didn't understand the importance of pivoting, but also recognize leveraging the assets that we had as an organization. And what I'm hearing uh, a lot about what you're saying is this entrepreneurial kind of a hustle mindset on seize opportunities, make the short-term investments for long-time rewards. I I see that a lot in business, especially in the nonprofit space. I mean, 
I know because I've been doing the accounting and those processes are usually so incredibly outdated. Uh, And what I've found is that sometimes there's a, you know, that you need to make some changes. You don't know where to go or it just continues to fall further and further and further down the priority list, uh, not realizing that you're giving up a lot of time and efficiency in the short run um, simply because you just don't have the bandwidth to fix it. And so I will say as a for-profit business owner myself, that's not unique to the nonprofit world, right? Uh, I started a, a firm from scratch. And I did all of the things. I never worked harder right. than I did for myself, even even right. even for a nonprofit, right? That's right. kind That's of crazy. Right. Right. I was burned out in that job and I left. And I still had to force myself to re-engineer these processes, find efficiencies. Like right. I, I still did it. It was still hard. I still felt like I didn't have the bandwidth. Um, but we have to kind of keep so many of these things constantly asking ourselves how can we do it differently how can we do it differently so and, and i think that, i think the nature of the entities forces you to ask that question as an entrepreneur right and simply having an entrepreneur mindset doesn't mean that you have to be in a for-profit arena absolutely yeah and i think even when people are looking to hire people they tend to miss that point yeah i i find my the clients i love working with the most are very entrepreneurial minded in the nonprofit right. space and they're wanting That's to right. do things very unique and it's going to be interesting to see how leadership styles shift um right. you know as the world is constantly and rapidly evolving um, right. exactly yeah so speaking of people that work in the nonprofit space so people in this space tend to do so out of sense of duty or service right and sometimes there's this kind of concept of martyrdom, like in the nonprofit space. Sure, sure. How can leaders create a work environment which capitalizes on the sense of duty without taking advantage of staff or self, frankly? You know, and I, I think this is this is a really sensitive but an important area. I think, number one, leaders need to be passionate about what they're doing themselves, and they need to be able to project that to their staff. Mm-hmm. I, I think they also need to be actually very inclusive in how they hire staff. I think the more that uh, people feel that they are part of something bigger than themselves, the more apt they are, one, to want to work for you and and to continue that kind of passion. I think the other is, I think it's important to understand and be very people-oriented. I think you need to be, you need to understand and be sensitive to the fact that sometimes people need a pat on the back. Sometimes people need to recognize they don't go into the into a nonprofit to make money. They don't go into it for, for the purpose of no. enriching themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's and, and sometimes in the nonprofit world, because of that, their self-worth can take a beating. And mm-hmm. constantly being reinforced that they're doing a great job, that 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 you recognize the little things that they do that it's important that they constantly get that constant reinforcement. But again, you have to be the kind of person that values people, that values the contribution that they make to your organization and communicate that in an effective way, both publicly as well as privately. Yeah, I love that. One of the takeaways that I had when I've you know managed people, now I manage many people, but you know I started in public accounting and, and there was always this kind of, it's a very cutthroat, very competitive environment. And really there's not a whole lot of pats on the back because it's just expected, right? And I think sometimes people think that's a generational thing. Oh, these younger kids, they just want constant pats on the back. It's like, well, you know, it's probably true. However, what I've realized in my experience is people just want to know where they stand because I think overwhelming 
majority of people want to actually be successful, want to actually do well in their job. And they don't always know if they're performing within expectations or not. And so that constant feedback, constructive feedback, not always positive, not a, you know, an attaboy all the time, but just an ongoing conversation about performance and expectations and responsibilities goes a really long way with, with all people I've found, not just, gen, you know, I've not found it to be a generation specific thing. I think people are not necessarily used to that, but people appreciate it once they start getting that ongoing communication dialogue, like you were saying. I've learned two things about people. One is we're really, we're really children in adults, in adult bodies. Yes. And second, when you have, when you're managing more than five people, you're really managing an adult daycare center. <laughs> people constantly, and, and, and as you say, people have that need. And sometimes the older the person is, the more important it is to give them some feedback and some recognition, because it's easy mm -hmm. as you get older to one, maybe just slide into retirement or two, feel as if you're underappreciated for the new shiny thing. Mm -hmm. And we all need a pat on the back no matter yeah. who you are, from the president of the United States to the street sweeper. We all need a pat on the back saying, add a boy, and then move on. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say, you say that. I had a woman that reported under me, and she was twice my age, and I was a very young executive at the time. I think I was 28 when I took on my first CFO job. And and I had a very ongoing conversation every month. We're going to talk about performance and goals and deadlines and, and all the things and where are we at. And she had shared with me, I've never had a boss show more interest in my personal and professional development than you have. And I've been in the career field a lot longer than you have. And so that's what I mean by it's not just a generational thing. You're absolutely right. right. All people need that. So when they don't get that, usually I find that leads to burnout. You're, you're coming along, you're doing the best that you can. You're not getting feedback positively or negatively. You're just spinning around, not knowing what direction you're headed to or heading into. And I think that leads to burnout. So how do you think people can combat burnout in this space with respect to all of these challenges they're juggling? You know, I, I think one, it goes back to who you are as an individual. I, I think that uh, I, I've learned for myself and I think others in the field that th those who see the job that they have as just one step in the continuum of their life, as opposed to their value wrapped around the work that they're doing, tend to have a healthier perspective on the environment that they're in. And they know when their time comes, when either maybe they're frustrated, it, it's irritated, it doesn't challenge them any longer. Um, their, their income necessarily isn't tied to, or, or their lifestyle isn't necessarily tied to the income that they're earning. By that, I mean, they, they, they don't feel that they need to stay there because of the, of the pay, if you will, regardless of what that level of pay is. Mm -hmm. I, I think the more you have a broader perspective of your life, I think the easier it is to identify burnouts. For me, um, I realized I, I was in. A, I spent a lot of time in the political arena, and I realized that as my personal faith increased, my tolerance for the day-to-day -day of politics decreased. And there was a there was one instance where I realized I was done, and it all had to do with other people's egos needing to be validated to get something done. And, and, and it took us six months 
for their egos to be stroked to get to the point where we were at that that one point in time. Mm. And we just wasted six months of time. And then I realized this is not for me any longer. Uh, so, so, so I think that, uh, again, I think that the more you're in tune with who you are, I think, and, the, and you have people around you who you talk to, mentors, uh, confidants, people who can give you the straight talk who'll say, you know what, I think you need to take a step back. I, I think that you're mm-hmm. maybe going a little bit uh, off track here. I think all those things, I think, help counter burnout. But again, I think it also goes back to how you value people and how you recognize the individuals on your staff so that they don't burn out simply from you being the cause of the burnout. Mm-hmm. You know, the failure to recognize them, the failure to give them something that's challenging. And then in some cases, the failure really to kind of pay them uh, enough to at least make it worth their while to stay where, where they are. I love that you talked about ego. And I think in my experience, and this is a little controversial topic, um, In the nonprofit world that I've spent a lot of my time in, I see a lot of egos, a lot of martyrdom, a lot of um, ineffective communication, right? And we don't wanna just sit down and have the conversation and deal with the conflict and talk it out, which is always really fascinating to me um, (laughs) because I'm working in a population space of people that are trained in these things in a professional sense. But when it's in a personal conflict way, and you hear this kind of things all the time in nonprofit administration, finance department versus right. the, you know, the fundraising department, the administration versus the program side. And, and it's no secret. There's a lot of this conflict across the aisles. Um, you, you're talking in a political sense, but I see a lot of that happen. For differing sure, yeah. agendas, differing agendas with right. That's right. That's right. You know, right. individual egos and right. I think that leads to a, a large level of burnout as well, at least based on the people that I've noticed leave the sector for some of these political reasons. So I, I love that when you said yeah, you absolutely. got burnout based on ego. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and let me just say one thing. I, the, the first job I had was doing civil rights work. And my mm-hmm. boss was very out of the box when it came to those issues. He said, listen, if we do our job correctly, there shouldn't be a need for a civil rights organization. Mm-hmm. And he got attacked from every angle because his, his view was there should be an end in mind. We should have a goal that mm-hmm. ends what we do. But that was something that people could, like egos wouldn't allow it. And mm. in this case, you had a lot of people who were products of the 60s who were now in the administrative roles. They had mm-hmm. positions of authority they could not let go of the idea that they would no longer be needed. Mm. Your eagles their identity. It. Their identity, their, right? their identity was wrapped around it. And you got to mm. be very careful about that. That's why you need to have, I think, an idea of where your life is going and how what you're doing fits into your overall life. Oh, I love So kind of along those same lines, let's talk about kind of leadership style and when you're in a leadership role and kind of uh, what training and skills that you might be able to get or evolve from or develop in some way to make you an effective leader, checking the ego, thinking about the end result in mind, you know, tracking or moving towards results and not necessarily just like processes or, or complacency really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, I, I think that, uh, I think the biggest thing 
is really developing your people skills. You know, life mm -hmm. really is a series of personal interactions. Mm -hmm. And we learn how to communicate first from our parents and then from our friends and family it kind of grows out from there. But, but I think that, I think everybody has a different leadership style. You have to figure out what works for you. I work better under strong leadership. Mm -hmm. I have a hard time with people who I don't believe are strong leaders. Mm -hmm. And strong leaders to me are people who have conviction, people who are not afraid to express their opinion. They're, they're not afraid, they, they accept the consequences of their actions. You know, weak leaders are always looking for the easy way out. You know, the, the strong mm -hmm. leaders are not looking for the easy. So I respond to strong leadership. Yeah. I, you know, I'm a New Yorker, just tell me straight. I kind of joke, yeah. throw a couple of cuss words in there to make me feel at home. That's okay, right? Yes. <laughs> um, and so I think you need to, one, you need to identify what kind of leadership that you're attracted to, but also, and, you know, and, and, and kind of develop those sort of skill sets. But you also have to be sensitive enough to understand not everybody might be attracted to your form of leadership. Sure. But the number one thing is you have to develop people skills. I, I once uh, heard a gentleman who extremely successful businessman. I mean, when I say extremely successful, hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. He says every quarter he reads how to win friends and influence people. Mm -hmm. I said, mm -hmm. you know, if that's good enough for you, it's good enough for me. Right. And sometimes we poo-poo those five love languages, you mm -hmm. know, mindset by Carol Dweck. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I think that we, I think one of the reasons why I think I've been fairly successful is that I've been able to develop those people skills by reading those kind of books. Mm -hmm. And you don't realize how effective they are until you realize how effective they are, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the more, the better equipped you are as a people person, your ability to communicate with people, you will be an effective leader and people will gravitate to you. They'll want to work for you and with you mm -hmm. to get things done. I love that. Somebody said to me one time in public accounting, uh, you know, because you get you know, ranked and, you know, evaluated regularly by job. Right. And, and right. then it kind of supposedly leads up to your performance evaluation, all that kind of stuff. And somebody once said to me, it was a manager at the time, and he said, Tasha, it's not how much, how good you are, technically speaking. It's how much people like you. And I think when I repeat that, and that stuck with me since then, I mean, this is 15 sure. years now. And that really stuck with me because I think people hear that and they think, well, you have to be a chameleon. You have to be fake. You have to, you know, just be whoever you want people to be. But really, I think it's more along the lines of what you're describing. It's it's a constant intention to build personal connections and relationships or some sort of relatability with people so that they will want to work with you. They want to, you know, interact with you. They respect you or, or something else. Um, but I think that that is really the key, I think, to the success that I've had is understanding that I have to be likable. It doesn't mean you always have to agree with me, but we have to be able to have conversations. You have to be able to trust my integrity, you know, all of the things that are going right, to make right. someone um, likable, right? And, and I love that. And, and you have to understand that you can't control how people react to you. You mm -hmm. can only control how you handle yourself. Mm -hmm. And ultimately people will respect you for that. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of another book, uh, The Four Agreements. Have you read that one? No, I haven't. Oh, you should. You should. It's a quick read, but, the, but it talks a lot about that, uh, about, you know, you cannot own how other people respond to you. That's them, not you. So I love that. 
I want to throw in one other thing that, you know, to really nail in because I enjoyed the conversation so much around the ego. And I think where also going back to how it relates to nonprofits that I have seen is that compared to, for example, how I run my business, right? Mm -hmm. I have a concern that in the event that Tasha failed to show up one day, how long would this business continue until it fizzled out to nothing, right? Because it's the Tasha Anderson show. Uh, and I really realized how vulnerable that is for my clients, for my staff, for my family, right? And so uh, about a year and a half ago, I started a relentless pursuit of making myself as irrelevant in my business as possible for the betterment of the clients, the employees, um, and my family, right? That, that would have to survive on beyond me or my abilities to work. And since then, I've been very intentional, very intentional to make sure there's a succession plan for every key function within the business. And oftentimes I've noticed in the nonprofit space that we have very siloed departments. That's right. There's usually one person that operates in that function, fundraising, a finance person, you know, maybe a program director. And then there's like the ED or the CEO. Um, and, and there might be a few other roles, but by and large, there's very distinct silos and nobody really knows how the other department does things. And nobody really has a transition plan or a succession plan short or long-term for those key roles. And really in my experience, I've seen where organizations will keep leaders in place. And I've actually witnessed this happening that we had a poor leader in place way longer than they should have been because no one knew how to do some of the key functions of that job. That was the only reason. And so I think for-profit businesses figure out how can I make money without me having to show up to work every day? How can I make money, make sure that I'm growing the business and it's not me doing all of the work, right? How can I drop my ego, which was a bit of an ego blow for me. I have to confess that, hey, this is no longer going to be the Tasha show. It's got to be a firm and it's got to be all of us. And really, like I said, almost aggressively pursuing the, the a transition plan for every single key function. Uh, and now some days I, people ask me, Tasha, what are you going to do? You know, uh, and I said, I don't know, I'll figure something out, but right, right, <laughs> it's not right. going to be, it can't be me. And as hard as that is to accept, and I especially feel that's true with founders of nonprofits. Right. And I had that's a conversation right. with the founder um, exactly. last week, and I basically told them, this is not your story anymore based on all the people you've impacted it's a collection of stories and it can't be about you anymore and i think that was a huge wake-up call for him but i think he appreciated that so yeah two things if you don't mind i, I think there are two Definitely. points that you raised one is when it comes to leadership what we tend to do what people tend to do is they're so insecure about somebody taking their position that they tend to hire somebody who doesn't threaten them as opposed to mm. someone who is really qualified and strong for the position. And mm. that person does the same thing. So you have insecurity in the, in the chain of leadership. So you got to mm. get away from that. The second yes. thing, your point about legacy, I think there are three questions that leaders need to ask themselves. One is what kind of life you want to live. Mm-hmm. Two is what kind of legacy you want to leave behind. And three, mm-hmm. what are you doing intentionally every day to fulfill the answers to those first two questions. And if people have a hard time understanding what their legacy, what they want their legacy to be, do this exercise of write their obituary. Mm-hmm. And if you write your obituary, ask yourself, are you living, is that simply a public statement or is that really uh, a standard that your family is to live by moving forward? Mm-hmm. I love that. 
What a great conversation, Julio. And I, I'd love to know a little bit more. You had mentioned some of the ways that you've kind of developed, you know, in your journey along to uh, getting to this point where we're having this conversation. Uh, and it sounds like you have quite a bit of wisdom in the leadership space. So tell us, how did you end up here? How did you, <laughs> how did you well, end up I, here? I always like to ask that question. It's always an interesting story. I, uh, I, I'm not going to say that it was planned. I'm just a kid from the Bronx, really a kid from the Bronx has been blessed. Um, I uh, was never the top student in class. They say consistency is the key to success. I was consistently a C student, and I'm very proud of that <laughs> consistency. Um, have a social work degree, grad and undergrad, although I've never had a social work job. I, I, as I was completing my master's in social work, I couldn't figure out what social workers did. And they just decided mm. I wanted to be a writer. And that led to an internship in Washington, D.C., a journalism internship. And uh, um, and that led to, during the course of an interview with a Hispanic civil rights uh, advocate, he offered me a job as one of his legislative aides, and that started a 25-year career in politics. And wow. uh, to put it in perspective, I just turned 32 for the second time, so to age myself mm -hmm. a little bit, um, <laughs> the last time the country passed an immigration bill, he helped to write half that bill. So I got access to some high level politics uh, at an early age and an early stage of my career, represented mm -hmm. local governments, a mayor, city council people, and then represented housing officials, had some medical issues as well that caused me to, uh, to sort of leave the full-time job space and that forced me to be an entrepreneur. And I'm still in a position where I'm able to make money, but also be of service to the community as well. So it's a great place to be. I love that. And if people want to follow you, uh, whether it's on social media or websites or anything, what's the best way for people to follow along? With really, the best doing? way to reach me is either by phone or by email. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's, uh, uh, if you don't mind me giving my phone number, it's 240 or jbj1153 at gmail.com. I can be found on Facebook. I can be found on LinkedIn. Um, but I just appreciate the opportunity to be here. I love that. Well, thank you so much. And it's been great. So I'm sure we'll be hearing from you again soon. I really enjoyed this conversation. And like I said, thanks Amen. again for joining us. Take care. Appreciate it. Bye-bye.